I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Hello and welcome to the How, the Why, brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls, and today we are connected with author and professor and uh, a multi-talented writer of all genre, David Galef. David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, thank you very much for that introduction. I think it oversells me, but I can live with that. <laughs> well, I'm sure throughout this conversation, we're going to discover that that might be true. So, uh, uh, thank you. This is this is great. Already, we've been we've been going at it. So, uh, hopefully, I can uh, respark that that energy and bring some of what we've already talked about into this conversation. Um, sure. So. First, we're gonna we're gonna start off. So you you, you you've published multiple books. You uh, have multiple degrees. You are a professor of of creative writing and literature. But let's let's take it back to some of the earlier stages in your life where you you first started falling in love with the written word and with story in general. Sure. Um, I mean, my story there um, is, I think, unfortunately, similar to many. Um, lonely uh, children, that is, um, you have a childhood that's just not all that happy and books are your friends, um, sometimes more satisfying than real people because, um, you know, you finish with a book, you can get engaged with a character, and then you put it aside and try another book. And I think for people who grew up with a, with a bookish childhood, um, you know, you're, you're, you'd lie um, full length on, on the sofa and read and read, um, you reach a certain point at least I did, where um, your standards um, rise a bit. No longer you con- you know content with any book that gets picked out. You know you pick out from the library, mm. and you put the book down, and you think, "Huh, I can do that," um, or "I can do something similar," or "I can do a better job," or whatever it might be. And it's it's I, I have to confess, it's not the most generous impulse because you're competing. Um, with this abstract author who, who wrote this book. Um, but that's how I started. I had read, um, in my case, um, I, I always read everything. I'm a, I'm, I'm a shameless eclectic in that respect. But I, I did read a lot of fantasy and science fiction when I was growing up, a lot less of it nowadays. But um, after a while, you, you start to think, well, I've got some ideas of my own. Um, and you start, um, perhaps encouraged by you know some friendly... English teacher at school, <laughs> um, you start trying to craft your own fiction. Um, in my case, and again, as in many other people's too, I think, your, your juvenilia uh, is wretched. <laughs> I don't think I've saved most of it, and that's just fine. But it's apprentice work, and it, and it begins you on the, the road to something better. Um, Do you remember and, how old you were when that, that uh, teacher assigned that? that? Um, 
It was actually um, in, in junior high school, which I think a lot of people call middle school. And I had a, uh, a teacher named Lawrence or Larry Kay, K-A-Y-E. I'll never forget him. Uh, I think a lot of other students didn't either because he was so engaged and so enthusiastic about writing well and provided us with different examples and, and gave us imaginative projects. And one or two of them turned into some short stories. And then I'm going to fast forward a bit because I, I also had a couple of other good English teachers in the high school level. Um, Neil Maloney uh, was one at Scarsdale High School. Um, in any event, I decided I might as well send some stuff out. I had read a lot of science fiction. Um, I wasn't thinking of any place in particular until a friend recommended um, a computing magazine called Personal Computing, um, which is long ago, you know, bit the dust. But it had enterprising columnists like an unknown guy named Bill Gates sure. at that time. Um, yeah. really, yes. Um, and I had the idea of some AI, some you know, artificial intelligence computer that had become some sort of Supreme Court justice. Um, I think I better not describe it at too great length. You'll see what a shabby contrivance it was. But I, but I did exactly what I'd mentioned before, which is I took the premise that this computer could – you know, you know the the uh, idea of searching for precedents. It's a lot. What a lot of lawyers do is they go back through the old dusty law books. Well, nowadays there are databases. But what this computer had such a great command of was all the legal precedents and and so on. What it didn't have was the, the was um, a sort of ability to separate out certain kinds of evidence, and so it missed something signal right in front of it. And that was the end of that computer. It's it was sort of a gimmicky science fiction story. But the editor at the time, a guy named Nels Winkless III, it's a great name, um, <laughs> he, he um, was just starting out the magazine a few issues in, and he thought this was kind of cool stuff. And he paid me $120, which back in – this is going to date me, I'm sorry – but back in 1977 was a lot of money. I was amazed. I, I didn't succumb to the idea of, you know, gee, guess I'll quit my day job because right. um, I was still a high school student. But – I I was delighted, and I started writing more and more. It was about two more years before I got another significant publication, and I I have to say I was never um, possessed of the idea that I'm going to be a writer full time. It had been impressed upon me how difficult that was, but I knew I liked to do it. And reading and writing have always been central. Hmm. Um, it's just that at that point, when I was 17 and got my first publication, it just knocked me for a loop in a positive way and I've been doing it ever since and another another layer of that came years later when I was hired to teach literature I, I mean I got a PhD in, in British modernism um, I'm glad I did I, 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 I like the stuff but um, as I was teaching I was publishing more and more fiction and finally they started this is at um, University of Mississippi where I got my first job after graduate school but I began as I say uh, publishing more and more fiction and they started throwing creative writing workshops at me. And in my last six years there, because um, I've since jumped back over the Mason-Dixon line, and I now teach at Montclair State in New Jersey, I co-founded an MFA program, which has done quite well. Um, I keep in touch, and I, I think they're flourishing. And you also uh, spent a good amount of time in, in Japan teaching as well. Now, what, right. was, the, uh, what was the decision to, to do that? <clears throat> Yeah, I, I, I get here too. It would be great if I could talk about, you know, some Rubicon decision. I stared at my future and took a step. But in fact, 
Um, it's much more ramshackle than that. Um, I had gotten into law school and wasn't sure I wanted to go. And on some college bulletin board, I'd found a program that sent students to Japan. Um, and I found a six-week summer program at Takeda Yakuhim, which is a large Japanese pharmaceutical company. And it was just teaching their employees English. And I thought, I can do this. So I deferred law school. And I took this summer trip. And in the process of, of those six weeks, I mean, it, Asia, even nowadays, but particularly then too, this is back in the early 80s, is different from, you know, putting a backpack on and finding yourself in Europe. Right. Uh, just the way of thinking is different. I and mean, if you want to, if you want to um, take a bite of food, you have two pieces of, of wood rather than, you know, a bunch of metal spears that res that is part of a fork. And I was just amazed by the culture. And so I sold my return ticket before the six weeks were up and stayed for over a year. Um, I had, I had gone there knowing no Japanese except yes, no, and thank you. And I had to teach myself because I was living alone in Japan with a full-time job. And my first book, in fact, was a translation of Japanese proverbs. It, it was in print for years, and it actually um, helped put me through graduate school. Yeah, I'm look, looking at uh, all of your works, and it seems like that, that experience has influenced you a lot. Through, a, I mean, your second book is, um, or your second novel, Turning Japanese, is... right. I don't want to say your story, but I'm assuming that is highly influenced on your story. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I mean, I co-opt other people's stories in that novel, right and left. It's an oddball production because it started off as a series of short stories, some of which had already been published, based it into you know the large canvas of a novel. And um, to this day, I mean, I've been told, I don't think it's it's sold all that well, but it seems to have this niche market cult favorite, if you will, in Osaka, where I had taught English um, for that year, because among other things, it describes what it is to be an expat living living in Osaka, the Osaka-Kyoto area, because the expatriates, I mean, for those people who like co-opting characters from real life, the expats, there were, I, I assume still are, but particularly then, there, there are you know, drunks from Australia, unemployable, who found that, my gosh, I can teach English, um, and then stay and parlayed a two-week vacation in Japan to five years. There are people looking over their shoulder on the run from I'm not quite sure what. <laughs> um, because, in, again, in those days, nowadays I think you need more TOEFL experience, ESL degree. Um, in those days, your sole qualification for being an English teacher, a decently well-paid job, was that you be a native speaker. And it, it, it meant that a number of these small companies, and I, I worked for one of them, uh, would acquire this crew of disparate individuals um, that were a field day for anyone trying to write a novel or a short story. Yeah, I mean, so you didn't speak a lick of Japanese at that point. Uh, no. <laughs> you probably, I'm assuming, couldn't read any of it as well. So you're, you're thrown into this environment... I mean, as a creative, I'm sure it was just a well of, of great stories and uh, uh, funny situations. Yeah, I mean, that's that's partly what the novel chronicles. It's um, funny and also sad because, again, many of these people um, had distanced themselves from all sorts of connections back home, and they were sort of living a, a floating existence. Um, some of them were trying to reinvent themselves. Some of them... Uh, were absolutely defeated by the Japanese language, which I came to love. Um, but it is difficult. I mean, if you're a Westerner 
um, trying to learn Spanish or, or Italian or French, at least you've got – and your English. Um, at least you've got cognates and words that resemble each other. But in, in Japanese and also Chinese and so forth, there's not much continuity you can, you can tread on. Um, you've got to learn whole swatches of, of strange-looking characters and pronunciations and so forth. Um, and that made them, some of these expatriates, just sort of throw up their hands. You had some people who'd lived in, let's say, Kyoto 10 years, and they really had difficulty getting by. They, they, they learned you know, certain stores where the, the proprietors spoke, spoke English and so forth, but they might as well have stepped off the plane about two weeks ago. Hmm. Um, it's quite striking. But in your time there, you did learn the language. Yeah. I, I, as I say, I, I still um, – how can I put this? I don't, I don't call myself quite fluent because I have really strong standards for fluency. That is, you should be able to do anything. Um, but yeah, I, I mean I taught myself to read, to write, to speak. Um, at one point, um, I had a, a, some friends who helped me. That is Japanese friends. Um, and to me, it was sort of this is going to sound like kid stuff, but I, but I mean it. It was an adventure. Yeah. You know, here I was in a in a country or realm where so many things were slightly off kilter for me. You know, what was that store at the end of the block? Uh, what was that man saying to that flustered woman on the subway? What's going to happen if I miss my um, you know, um, train, you know, train stop and I get taken 30 miles out into the countryside when I'm supposed to be teaching on Wednesdays at Shinmewa, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so it was a heavy experience. I was, I was 20, 22 at the time. Wow. In fact, it was the era where other people were working on Japanese novels of that kind so that I think, uh, let's see, it was Brad Lighthouser who wrote Equal Distance. Uh, Jay McInerney uh, wrote one called Ransom. Um, it wasn't just my experience, in other words. It was the era when many Americans were going abroad, often to Japan, because they, they, could, they, they had a healthy sort of language training program. And they brought back stories. What I think it taught me, besides you know just a, a, how to cope with, with another culture, is a certain delight in something um, not just unexpected, but it's the same yet different. Um, so that, for example, some of the um, expats would sometimes remark on, you know, I went to this this pastry shop and I bought what looked like a sugar-crusted bun and I bit into it and there was curry inside it. <laughs> uh, that they, I, I mentioned that particular example because about five people told me that experience uh, and all I could think of was, hey, I like curry. Um, but what they meant, of course, was you, you're looking for this, you get that instead. Right. And I think, in fact, that's a very good fictional model um, for a story. That is, you know, you can have a vignette where the same thing happens to you time after time when you go to the shop, right? Um, but not this time. You know, um, they've changed the display and something's not right. Um, and the question is how your character is going to deal with it. Um, in fact, I think that's another um, way to think of um, fiction in a short or long space, which is throw the character into a situation that, that he or she may not be familiar with and watch them grapple, successfully or unsuccessfully. It can go either way. Let's talk a little bit about the usage. Um, you're, you're turning Japanese, started off as short stories. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the difference between writing uh, 
short stories and writing something longer. When you first sure. started working on on Flesh, your first novel, mm-hmm. how was the process different from the the shorter pieces that you had already worked and published? And- mm-hmm. Sure, I've got a lot. Um, um, I've got a fair amount to say about that because, <laughs> uh, well, because because I had heard a creative writing instructor tell me previously, previous to, to, to my embarking on a first novel. Oh, you know, the, the novel is a loose, embracing form, but the short story, uh, this, is, this is a famous author who's going to remain nameless, um, is a harder form because every word has to be in the correct order. Nothing can be amiss. And I know what he means. But in fact, the novel, which is a big job, has problems that would never crop up in a piece of short fiction. And here are some of them. That is, it's Thursday. What are my characters going to do today? Hmm. Damn, they did that yesterday or in chapter, you know, um, 17. Oh, wait a minute. I left Cynthia hanging from a cliff, you know, um, half hanging out of her car in the previous chapter. And then I left her there. Or, or wait a minute. Now, my, now my, two, my two main characters are going to have a conversation. And well, wait a minute. They said that last time. Well, what's going to happen? In short, um, unless – well, you don't have to outline. I found it useful too. Uh, do just that. Um, but unless you have some conception of where you're going, you often freeze up on the page, not because you've forgotten how to write. I think some people believe that, but because you're not really sure where you're going. Hmm. And you can figure it out as you go along. But as someone pointed out, this is this famous um, description about writing a novel, like driving driving a car backwards with the headlights out. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's a misquotation, but it's let, let's leave it leave it that way. Sure. Um, that there are all sorts of logistical issues. And I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to, to analogize here. Um, I, when, we, when I was running the MFA program at Old Miss, we had some whip smart writers um, who could write sentences so slick you could skate on them. It was really impressive. And that, to my mind, is what a writer is someone who writes a sentence you want to repeat. Um, reading it out loud to a friend of yours or something. And that's fine. And it worked well for the span of a short story. But some of them um, were trying their hands at novels during our program. And it was a three-year program, so they had, they had some time. But they often came up short. And it wasn't because the writing was lacking. It's because they literally could not think of enough plot and, and character development and so forth to last that whole distance. Mm. Um, so one answer is you better you better be sure that you've got a novel's worth of material. You mentioned Flesh, my first novel. That was actually based on a short story with more or less that plot. And I thought, this is bigger than a short story. And I had all sorts of side characters and side plots and, and a sort of an accelerating trend um, with one guy's fascination for a particular kind of relationship that he couldn't get enough of. And um, even with that idea in mind, I had to stop constantly and scratch my head and think, well, now where can it go from here? And I mean, nowadays there's, I want to get this right, NaNoWriMo, right? Right. National Novel Writers Month, which is just, just, just passed. And I I salute almost any kind of writing. And so I, I think this is probably a good thing, but it does emphasize one of the problems, which is, you know, these people are trying to write a novel often for the first time and it's not easy. The solution for National Novel Writers Month is don't worry so much about that. And I think that's a sane possibility because one, one thing that happens a lot is if you write, um, continually 
um, one story, guess what? The, the, the prose quality, for lack of a better term, often drops appallingly. That is, it's easy to write, you know, a gorgeous little prose poem or, or, or a little tale that, that, that has gorgeous, stunning language. But per day, per day in your novel, you're going to encounter times when all you did was you got, you know, John and Mary um, across town in a bus. <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's the, you know, five, five pages of, of chapter 10. And you think, ugh. And you got to deal with that because that's part of your novel. You can rewrite it later if you want, but it's time to move on. But it's depressing for a lot of people, I think, because there's, there's much less short-term gratification. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been I working mean, on one for 10 years now, so I know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. What is it that, that – I mean, other than, as, as Cormac McCarthy once said, it's like the exigencies of life kept him from finishing one novel for 17 years, I think it was – what is it in, in a writerly sense that, that's keeping you from, from finishing a chapter or proceeding or whatever? Because uh, I, I get I – I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, 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 no. I appreciate it. It's, I, I, I get bored with it, but I can't yep. let it go until it's done. Yeah. No, I understand. Now, when you say you get bored with it, again, that's another issue that doesn't come up in a short story. In a short story – uh, no matter how tedious or captivating your characters are, you can wind them up in 10 or 20 pages. But in a novel, your characters become, after a while, like party guests who have stayed, you know, overstayed sure. their welcome. And you're tired of cleaning up their cigarette butts and, and, and half-filled mm -hmm. drinks. And you want to move on, but they're still with you. And the same is true with some of the situations you've gone over and over. It's one reason why I now advocate to anyone who wants to try it, um, unless they're an absolute kind of person who, who just storms through things, to write an outline. It's, it's dull to contemplate. Um, it, they think it stifles creativity. I understand that argument, though I disagree. But at least it gives you a plan, a floor plan, a, a, a blueprint for where you want to go and how you want to do it. You don't have to adhere to it, but it's there when you need it. So that you, when you're, you're staring at the screen, um, thinking what comes next, you you consult your your uh, your tree, your your outline, and you think, oh, okay, this comes next, and you rig up some stuff, and maybe it's not stellar, but then you move on, because um, and I think this is sort of National Novel Writers Month type of advice. You want to get to the end of that sloppy, God, it needs revision, first draft, because that's the main accomplishment. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter if the last two chapters are hastily thrown together with dim lighting um, and bad continuity, um, that's actually okay. You know, because you just want to get through that. And then the rest of the stuff, that can come later when you go back to your outline and realize, hey, I didn't adhere to half this outline, which is okay. Um, what you do is you, and I'll shift analogies again here. I, I like I like these kind of models. Your, your, uh, your outline is like it's some sort of Christmas tree with... And once you've finished the outline, then you, then you go back and, first of all, you, you revamp the outline according to what you actually did write, not, not the way it, the outline was. And then you hang more baubles on it like a Christmas tree and you insert um, a scene at the diner where she's going to break up with him for the second time in Chapter 17. And you're going to put something else to speed up the, you know, the, the uh, action in Chapter 20, maybe a little, little car chase of some kind that ends badly and you keep on working on it, um, it's not to everyone's taste. It's, it's long-term stuff. 
who was it? Uh, V.S. Pritchett, famous, you know, British novelist, short story writer. He mostly known for short stories, but I assume like so many people, he was urged by his agent, you know, to write novels. That's what sells. And he finally confessed near the end of his life. He said, I just don't have the proper vegetative temperament for a novelist. And I know what he means. It takes a lot of patience and, and stubbornness. It's just the way it is. I think if you're going to write a novel as opposed to a short story, you really should have a novel-length idea. Hmm. Um, or you will be faced with the unlovely task of continually forcing small material into a big space where you know, there's a problem of character complexity or, or what's going to happen next. Um, does that make some sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now let's let's take it in the uh, let's let's uh, go to the the micro and talk about your newest sure. book, Brevity. You, <laughs> sure. You wrote this essentially a a, a guide or an instructional manual for flash fiction. So we're 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 taking it down to the the nano at this point. And first, give us a, a quick. I mean, I'm sure a lot of my listeners know, but a quick description of what flash fiction is. Sure. It's it's a bit of a misnomer insofar as um, one of the original terms was short shorts, um, and two guys, Shepard and Thomas, um, came out with what was called sudden fiction back in 86. Their model was about six pages or 1,500 words. Bring it home under that. And they had a number of famous practitioners, whether it was Borges or, or Colette or, or Hemingway, um, and, and unknowns as well. And it spawned a whole series of anthologies, sudden fiction continued and so forth. And then came a guy named Tom Hazuka, who started with what he called flash fiction. That brought the number down. Uh, again, these are all imprecise terms, but let's say a thousand words or so, which okay. is often held to be a benchmark for flash fiction. Uh, the guy, a guy named Jerome Stern came out with microfiction. Um, if you want to take it back to near the vanishing point, there's a guy named Ben White who has, I think, a rather successful website called nanoism.com where it is um, – it's Twitter fiction. You you know, give me something that works um, in 140 characters or fewer, and it can be done. You've got you've – got, I mean you've also got, for instance, um, two-sentence horror stories. Right, right. Where yeah. – yeah, I mean I don't think that set exists anymore. But while it was around, it was pretty successful. That is, you know, the first sentence would set up something seemingly innocuous, and the second would pull the rug out from under it. Any event, um, there's also, for instance, um, Robert Swartwood's Hint Fiction. I'm, I'm sorry to be going on some, such length, but there's so many animals in this sure. menagerie. Uh, Robert Swartwood's Hint Fiction Anthology, which is fiction in 25 words or fewer. Mm. And again, that too is something that can be done quite well. Do you think that Here, this is yeah. something that, as a new writer, would you recommend like starting smaller, or does it is it more challenging? I know we kind of talked about this with short stories right. and, and novels, but it seems like this even shorter form might be more complicated than writing something longer. I, I understand your point, and and I will reply confusingly. It is and it isn't. Okay, uh, which is to say, you're not wrong that in a short piece. Any era glares more. Um, anything out of place sticks out more. But that said, I think it's one of the reasons why so many teachers, you know, in K through 12, have their students try a short poem or something. It's not that they think their students are all poets, but it's fairly short. It doesn't take um, 
that much terrible effort to produce X number of lines. And I think the same is true um, for flash fiction. That is, on the level of you know superlative brilliance, um, yeah, I think a piece of flash fiction is extremely difficult. But on a level of turning out something quite readable, something enjoyable, both for reader and for writer, um, I think it's an admirable, I was going to say exercise, um, but I really mean accomplishment. Um, exercise on the level of, again, if you're trying to work on your writing, I mean, there are certain narrative skills that pull sharply into focus. Sure. I mean, a table of contents, for example, in brevity, um, the only way I could handle a book like this, and it's, it's billed as brevity, a flash fiction handbook, uh, mostly because the, the publisher didn't like the term textbook, and I understand that. <laughs> but, but, it, but it is textbooky, if that's an sure. adjective in certain ways, which is the chapters are devoted, each one, to a particular form that writers can work on. So the chapter one is vignettes, right. then character sketches, then, um, should you want to do this, um, a flash fiction made out of letters or diary entries um, or even lists, you know, like here are five lists, uh, sorry, five items, you know, including lipstick, you know, um, Glock 9mm, <laughs> um, uh, nylon curtain. I could go on. I'm, I'm, you know, just improvising shamelessly. But you make up something of that you know, of that list. Right. And um, in the book, you also give exercises too. So right. I mean, it is kind of a textbook in that sense yeah. of of helping people with exercises to work on strengthen these mes- muscles and build these uh, uh, techniques and and have them as a tool. <clears throat> Right. So the point where if you since you mentioned writing longer, um, I think, you know, if you get to be fairly proficient at flash, you've got a real sense of economy and precision that can't help but be useful in a longer work. Hmm. Uh, I mean, one one complaint about a lot of novels is, oh, they go on too long or there's no reason to spend, you know, an entire page um, describing his face. Not that many modern novels do that, but they could. (laughs) Uh, And if you're but on the other hand, if you're accomplished in flash. Um, you know, you might very well be able to sum up someone's features with what, just one twitch of her eyebrow or um, sum up a person's character with one annoying habit and so on. John Updike is particularly good at, at, at summing up someone's life in a sentence with a, with a golf habit and a second divorce and, you know, inser- insert third trait here and right. that's it. You've yeah. got a character in front of you. I, I have to say, like, I am such a... a reading through brevity like made me realize how much I've enjoyed flash fiction without realizing that that's what I was reading. Well, that's a good point. That is, there's an awful lot of stuff out there, which, you know, back in the day was called something else. But I mean, Hemingway's Nick Adams stories, uh, half of Saki, Hector Hugh Monroe. This is short stuff that no one simply called, you know, cared to label at the time. Yeah, I I read. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Steve Martin's as a writer, and I love that oh, yeah. he used one of his pieces. But I read oh, Pure yeah. Drivel, and I mm-hmm. loved that book. And you know, I I was like, these are so great and so short and so easy to consume. Yeah. Uh, and you know, they were just his uh, New Yorker essays. essays yeah, I casuals. I didn't even think about them as as flash fiction. I mean, I, I, that term wasn't didn't exist in my consciousness at the time. Right. Well, that's the other thing is that that I think. Again, if you wanna if you wanna define it, as as another interviewer asked me to do, you know, what is flash fiction as opposed to stuff that isn't? I guess if forced, I would say the length constraint, sure, and then it's got to have some kind of narrative drive or story to tell, however loosely constru- you know construed that is. 
Um, and so Steve Martin's pieces, like the one I used, they do tell a little story, and that's sure. sufficient. It's, I mean, again, I, I don't, I, I get, I often try to think of my target audience because, I mean, on the on the other on one hand, anyone who's trying a uh, hand at writing could pick up this book, and that's fine with me. But it also might be in a classroom where you got, let's say, a teenage or or college age audience. Do they respond to something like Steve Martin's middle-aged love? And I think they will, hmm. actually. Um, or and it'll resonate with enough of them. Because that's something else I had to think of. That is not just stuff I like, but what stuff that can help them grow as a writer, give them ideas. Well, you, it feels like you kind of capture a lot of that, that humor and that uh, brevity, to steal your, the term, uh, sure. when you write for Inside Higher Ed. And... Uh, yeah, I have a lot of fun doing that. Um, that's something I would actually like to get published as a book one day. And I, I must have about 50 pieces by now, but even if I don't, um, I have a lot of fun writing that column. Um, yeah, I've been accused of, of writing a nonfiction column. I swear it's fiction, <laughs> but, but, uh, places I have, I have worked do give me a lot of ideas for it. And yeah, some of them are mini narratives. Well, David, thank you again, man. This is, this is sure. great. You're a lot of a fun pleasure. to talk to and, and, uh, you're a lot of fun to read as well. I appreciate it. Thank you for drawing me out. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you, too. This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How, The Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.